All right, everybody, we're back for uh, podcast number six of the Recovery Lab podcast series. I'm happy to report that our guest today is Denise Marsters. Uh, as per usual, I've got my little introductory spiel. Uh, for everybody listening, I really do appreciate the comments and the involvement of people. Please feel free to offer up suggested topics, uh, nominate people to be on the podcast. We hope to promote everyone's involvement to make this a, a, a more, uh, to increase the likelihood that people can find uh, helpful information or at least can uh, access a network to find people that might be able to help uh, with whatever problem people are having. Uh, the examples I've given for helpful things to post, if you know of something that's particularly beneficial to the recovery community at large, please post it. By way of example, uh, you know, the Pines was given out Narcan. Uh, they posted that on Facebook, no questions asked, just go pick it up, those kinds of things. All right, uh, so I'm still uh, appreciative of the financial assistance. Danny, thank you again, buddy. Uh, if you would like to donate, you can send it to me at cash tag Daniel Hassan. Uh, we're still working to set things up and get it moving, but we're making some progress in that direction. All right, Begathon is over. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Denise Marsters, retired therapist, uh, local recovery promoter. Denise, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Drew. Well, I'm glad to have you. So uh, I know that she wouldn't say this, but I will. I have had Denise as a therapist before when I tried uh, my hand at uh, IOP at Bridge to Recovery. And I thought Denise was fantastic, and she was gracious enough to say yes to be on the podcast. So uh, she and I have not exactly spoken about this, but she did send me a little bit of history about uh, her involvement here in Jackson. And I thought I would just give you the floor and let you tell everybody how you came to be here. Why do you have that accent? <laughs> Okay, well, first of all, you did your little um, spiel beforehand, and I do want to make a donation because I think this is a very important thing that you're doing. So if I can help with that mixer or whatever that thing is, I definitely will. Thank you. But very anyway, kind. You're um, very kind. I am a person in recovery. If I make it till January of uh, 2023, I will have 29 years, which to me is... It's a miracle in and of itself. Um, you asked me to talk about my accent. Well, I was born and raised in Ireland. There we go. Um, lived there for 25 years. You know, when people hear that I'm a recovering alcoholic and that I come from Ireland, they say, well, it makes sense. You know, all Irish people are alcoholics. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're not. I grew up in a family where there was hardly any alcohol use. My, there was a bottle of wine on the table at Christmas and maybe Easter, but... We never kept alcohol in our house. I never saw my mom drunk, never saw my dad drunk. Um, but there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of psychiatric illness in my father's side of the family. Um, growing up, uh, my father had four sisters. Each one of them, except for one, all three sisters were in and out of mental hospitals when I was a child. And they were brilliant women. I mean, they were, they were very well educated, um, but they had what we knew back then or what we were told back then were nervous breakdowns. Uh, 
you know, I know there's a there's a um, a better clinical or terminology for that now, but um, so as a child, I saw my aunt who lived with us. I saw her being um, in and out of the mental hospital, and back then they did shock treatment. So I I knew as a child that if there was any sadness, if I showed any sadness or if I showed any fear or anything other than joy and happiness, that this could happen to me. So that was a fear that I grew up, there was never, we never talked about it in our family. You know, most families, you put your, you know, you keep your dirty laundry at home and we owned a local, I grew up in a village. Now we're talking about one street, about maybe 20, maybe 25 houses in the village. So I grew up in rural Ireland uh, and it was beautiful. And I'm one of nine children. I was the second eldest. Um, but I can remember my aunt being taken away and she wouldn't come back for a long time and then she'd come back and, you know, when they did shock treatment, she couldn't remember anything. So that was always my fear that that's the way I was going to end up. Um, I, I told you I'm one of nine. So there were, there was Anne was the first one. Then I came second, and then there was Joan. There were three girls to begin with. And Anne had the bright red carrot hair. Joan had the bright red carrot hair. My hair was jet black. So the, you know, the, 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 the comment I heard a lot as a child was, where did you come from? Or we brought the wrong baby home from the hospital. We must have brought the wrong, <laughs> the baby. wrong baby. The wrong baby came home <laughs> yeah. from the hospital. Well, you know, when a child hears that, you know, my parents were the best parents I could ever have imagined having. Uh, but you know how we make things up in our heads about things that are said? So I grew up thinking that I didn't belong. They didn't tell me that. I grew up thinking that I wasn't um, part of the family. And I always wondered what was wrong with me. Um, I, am, I, I have never considered myself as an intellectual person. My two sisters were like A students. I was the one who couldn't care less about school, um, didn't like to study. You know, I, I think I, I'm a right brain person rather than a left brain person. I have a huge imagination um, and always had. And then the fact that I wasn't good at school, didn't like math, still don't like math, um, and wasn't interested in, in books. I was always considered different. So. That's where my, my, my feelings of not being good enough, not being enough, nobody told me this. These were messages that I got. And, you know, as when we, being a therapist, um, I always go back to childhood with people to see what was, you know, what was your idea of who you were, what you meant to people, what was your, what was your, your, what did the family think about you? What was the, what was the message? you got from your family and because I think that's where it starts with us especially our colleagues and addicts you know where does our self-esteem come from where does our self-worth come from and then you know I found the elixir that helped all of that and I can remember the first time I took a drink I was a teenager and um, I don't know what was going on in my life at the time but I remember taking a drink and that fear and that depression left me and I thought oh my gosh this is this helps me like you know I thought I could sing I thought I could dance I thought I could flirt I 
I became somebody else when I drank. The, the fear and the anxiety. And I don't know whether it was depression, but a lot of sadness for some reason. Don't know where that came from. Um, throughout my, my, my teenage years, um, not doing well in school. Because I didn't like to study. I was told, I got the message that I was stupid. So, you know, if you get the message you're stupid, why study? <laughs> yeah, it's funny how we uh, conform to these roles that we think that we that we have. Exactly. Like that it is your, yeah. you know, and, you scholastically know, your sisters should be the ones doing that and you should be the one doing whatever the black sheep does. Right, and I was, and you know, the funny thing about it is my sister, several years ago, when I was home in Ireland, she got me this little, I sleep with it, it's a pillow, and it's a black sheep. And she said to me, she said, Denise, I got you this because you were always the black sheep of the family. And I'm in my 60s now, and that's still, you know, I sleep with that pillow. But, um, but going back to, to um, you know, to the family of origin, m m my dad passed away the year I got sober. My father was my hero. Um, he was my hero, but he was the toughest one on me. He was, um, he was very strict. He, he was strict, but he was the one that I always wanted. His approval. To, I always wanted his approval. And the only way I could get his approval was I was a good runner. I was good at sports. Now, not sports like you know we play here in the States, but I was good at on a sports day. I was great at the sack race. I was great at the three-legged race. I was great at the spoon race. And I won a lot of medals for running. So that was my way. And in 2020... No, yeah, 2000, no, in the year 2000, I ran the, I, I flew home to Ireland to run the Dublin City Marathon. I used to be a marathon runner, and it was on his birthday. And I don't remember this, but my brother remembers it. My brother ran that marathon with me. And when I came through the finish line, my brother heard me say, Dad, are you proud of me now? Aww. And he had been, I was, I had been sober a while that time, maybe six or seven years. And um, I don't remember saying that, but he said I said that. Because I, I always wanted his approval. And I don't know if I ever got it verbally, but I heard others saying how proud he was of me. But you know, the stories we make up in our heads are, are just unbelievable. Um, one of the things that Carl Jung said you know, he was, a, he was a Christian, and he said, we come into this world with two personalities. The first, were, the first personality is, he called it the Christ within us. I call it the spirit within us. And he said, that's the one that we come into this world to, our purpose is in that spirit, that what we're meant to do for our lives is in that spirit when we come into this world. Because each one of us has a place to, has a, a role to play in our, in our journey in life. And nobody else can play that. And then he said, when we pop into this world and we come out, we take on another personality. And that's called the adaptive personality. And that's the personality that we adapt through our family of origin, through society, through school, through religion, through whatever it is, that our environment that we grow up in to be liked. So we take on the lies, you know, you have to be a good girl to be liked, you can't say no, you have to, you know, all of these roles that we take on, 
And then the blessing of recovery, and I think everybody should be in recovery. <laughs> because not because alcohol is bad or that, but it we the lessons that we learn through recovery. During my journey, I get to take off the layers of the lies. And with every layer I take off, that spirit comes through. And that's that's the beauty. Like I'm doing what I love today. I tried always tried to be something I wasn't. Didn't think that what I well didn't know what I was, but didn't think that what I was was good enough. So I was trying to be. You know, I took singing lessons. I can't sing. I'm not a singer. I took dance classes. I mean, I'm not a dancer. So I was trying to do things that I thought would make me popular and make me accepted, but that wasn't what I was meant to do. In furtherance of this adapted person, adaptive personality, uh -huh. finding acclaim and value through what you think other people appreciate, is that? Well, finding value in the truth. You know, you mean the adaptive personality? Yeah, we're we're playing a role that we're that's not ours. Sure. You know, it's like there's no there's no congruency, there's no harmony. There's we we feel like we don't fit in. We don't fit in because we're trying to fit in where we don't fit in. But when we find this 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 harmony, every morning my my my, my prayer is that I'm in harmony with God and the universe. Living an authentic life exactly. as opposed to the inauthentic authenticity of yeah. I, I mean that's I'm a struggle. That. That's a struggle. When when I'm trying to live a life that is not that is incongruent with my spirit, I'm going two different directions. Well, like I told you before I start I hit the record button, I have some questions over here. Uh-huh. And this topic kind of dovetails nicely into one of those topics. Your questions scare me. No, no, no they're, they're good. They're good. Uh, what what drives you and keeps you motivated? My spirituality. Is it this this uh, desire to be more authentic and aligned mm -hmm. with God and the universe? Yeah, truth. Practically speaking, how do you do that? Oh gosh, that's a big question. How do I don't know? Um, I get on my knees every morning. And I ask God to direct my thoughts, my feelings, my words, and my actions. And I have to be truthful to myself. You know, there was a time when if I made a mistake, I would cover that up to, I mean, I would cover one lie up with another lie. I would cover one mistake up with another mistake. Um, and that's about protection. That's about survival. But today I don't have to do that. You know, I don't have to, and I wrote down some things because I know when I leave here, I'll say, I should have said this, should have said that. Um, well, the, the, the cure for that is having you back on the podcast. So oh, don't okay. Don't fret too much. All right. When I don't have to hide anything, when I don't have to defend anything, when I don't have to protect anything or prove anything, I am free. Transparency. Transparent exactly. Life. I was always trying to hide something. I was always trying to defend something, to prove something and to protect something. So I lived a life of, you know, just a container. And the container just, you know, had to fall apart for me to, to be authentic and to me to be okay with who I am. 
You know, I turned 67 last month and, you know, I've let my hair go gray I'm, I'm, and I love it. And I love living in Asheville. You know, I moved to Asheville uh, three years ago because my daughter had a, had a baby. My, my grandson is the light of my life. Oh my God. How old is he? He's three and a half and he is, he, he brings out that child in me. I mean, we have so much fun. He calls me Nana. He, he, I talked to him this morning. He said, Nana, when, when are you coming over? And I said, Jude, I'm in Mississippi. He said, Nana, can you come home? We need to play, Nana. And then he said, Nana, can, I want you to come over. I said, why do you want me to come over, Jude? He said, because Mama's being mean. Mm. It's in so, your relationship with him, a gift and a reward for having gotten sober and lived a decent life you'd either you'd probably be dead if you hadn't and listen you'd miss out on this this my my relationship with i have one daughter michelle my relationship with my daughter is amazing when i think about being a mom when she was a child you know this brings up emotions in me so i'm glad we're not we don't have we're not on, what is it, Zoom, Zoom. Zoom. Um, because I didn't get sober till she was seven years old. I was there physically, but I was not there emotionally. And for my daughter to ask me to move to North Carolina, and her husband, Corey, I mean, I have the best son-in-law and the best daughter that anyone could ask for. When they came to me and they asked me to come to North Carolina, I had a big decision to make because I, Mississippi is where I got sober. The, the people in Mississippi held me till I, until I could find myself, the people in recovery. Um, but when they asked me to come, you know, that was a no-brainer. I called Charlotte Smith, who was my real estate agent and my best, one of my best friends. I said, Charlotte, I said, put my house on the market. And she said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. Like, no thinking. Um, and I'll always thank Charlotte for that. She arrived at my doorstep with the sign, with the for sale sign, and I thought, oh gosh, this is real. This kind of scared me. But getting back to Jude, you know, Michelle will ask me uh, when I'm over there, you know, he's three now. And she'll say, Jude will do something funny. He's, he is a comedian. This kid is, he's going to be a stand-up comedian. He is something else. But um, he'll do something, and Michelle will look at me, and she'll say, Mom. Oh, I know where the story's going. Was I like that when I was three? And it breaks my heart to say I don't remember. I mean, there is a lot of stuff in her childhood that before, you know, before she, she was seven that I don't remember. Well, I appreciate your taking the risk in sharing that because there's a lady out there right now who mm. uh, is eat up with shame, guilt, and remorse. And to see somebody like you that's, that can stay sober and also deal with the guilt, shame, and remorse for things you did. Uh, they need to be, people need to be able to see it. They right. need to be able to see that just because you have guilt, shame, and remorse for things you did while you were drinking, you know, doesn't it does not mean you can't be sober 
be mm -mm. productive and be mm -mm. happy. And you know that, and that, just to, to piggyback on that, that's the cycle of addiction. Of course. You know, we will, we will, we will use whatever we're using, whether it's substance or, uh, you know, a, um, a process addiction, uh, which can be spending, it can be sex addiction, love addiction, relationship addiction, gambling, all of those process addictions, um, whatever it is. And we'll do something that is against our morals and our ethics. And then we'll come to in the morning and we'll say, oh my God, what have I done? And the shame, the shame, and I, I shouldn't say we because I, I don't, I can't speak for everybody, but for me, the shame would eat me up and I couldn't deal with it. So then here I'm at the liquor store at 10 o'clock in the morning waiting for it to open. Now I can remember being here in Madison one time, one morning, I had the shakes so bad that I had to, I drove to the gas station right up here, the gas station right up here at six o'clock in the morning to get a six pack because I could not hardly function. And there was this little black man that came into the, into the store and he looked at me with the six pack and he shook his head and he said, you don't want to do this, do you? And he knew I mean, he, like, we know now when we see, I thought, I thought I was hiding this from people, but that man knew exactly. And I wish I could remember him, but it didn't stop me, obviously. But it, sh it, it shook me to know that somebody recognized what I was doing, you know, and, and what it does to people. But addiction is a disease, I truly believe that. And a disease, the main purpose of a disease is to kill its host. That's the main purpose of a disease. I'll get on with that. It's not going to think about my daughter. It's not going to think about my grandson. It's not going to think about my family that I've put through so much pain. All it thinks about is... Destruction. I'm going to destroy you and everything around you. The one thing about recovery is... I have a choice today. I have a choice whether I go out there and take a drink or whether I use something else to deal with the issues, like you said, you know, the guilt and the shame. I have to forgive myself. And, you know, I read uh, somebody made a comment about how, I think it was this morning when you posted or yesterday when you posted that I was going to be on. Somebody made a comment that you know, I talked to him about self-forgiveness and that maybe that helped him. We have to forgive ourselves because if we don't, we're going to have that cycle of addiction. We will not get off that wheel. Um, I cannot change the past. My past will not get any better, no matter how I try to change it. But what do I do with the gifts I have not? Look, you're speaking my language and I know that, uh, you know, we have, humans have this natural tendency to seek out those beliefs that support what they already believe. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I completely agree with how you're laying this out. Uh, you know, I conceptualize my own addiction as being, you know, I don't have a trauma from childhood, although at times I've thought that would be nice. I could at least blame my poor behavior on that. But this avoidance, fear, avoidance, not wanting to, not, uh, you know, face some of the real life challenges I've had 
And so we just fuel that cycle of self-defeating behavior. Right. And it's, it's tough to stop. And, and we fight for our limitations. Go expand on that. Well, I can't do this because I'm too old, or I can't do this because I've been to treatment oh, four times. The never-ending list of excuses. Ex excuses yeah. for our limitations instead of embracing our possibilities. You right. know, what if? When I started the McCoy House, you know, I said this to Costas last night. She was there, and, you know, I, I had to introduce the board and stuff, and Costas was at the... And, and a lot of wonderful people were at a gratitude dinner that we had last night. And, and as I told you before the podcast, we should have had 400 people there because, or maybe a thousand people there of people who have helped us. But our facility was so small that I just wanted to start off a gratitude dinner for thanking uh, people for helping us and for giving us donations, you know, because we're a nonprofit. And we'll talk about that maybe a bit later. But, um, Costas was sitting there, and I said, Costas, you know, I told the story that when I opened the McCoy house, that was like one of the craziest things I've ever done in my life. Look, I can attest to that. So uh, prior to today, Denise had sent me a little bit of history about how she came to uh, establish the McCoy house, and it uh, if, if your friends thought you were crazy, I can see there was good cause for it, because it was a... I mean, I, I tip my hat to you. Uh, you did it. And it's a story that people need to hear. So if you want to talk however much about that you want to talk about, I'm here to listen to it, and people will enjoy hearing this story. Well, it's a long story, and that's why I sent it to you. But, you know... Um, All right, what is the McCoy House? The McCoy House is an extended care program for women. It's a sober living system. It's a sober living system. The reason we changed the name to Extended Care is we offer a lot more than your typical sober living houses. Um, and, and there's, you know, it, it's, that's not a put down on sober living. There's, it's just a different level. Sure. And um, when I, I was in treatment four times. All right. I did not get this the first time. I am not your poster child for, you know, I've heard, I heard somebody else talking to your podcast and that was their first time and I thought oh my gosh yeah Carver with his how one would, and done and one I and done amazing. I was not one and done yeah. I mean I was but I I kept fighting I didn't surrender and um, but it took four times it takes what it takes that's not a that's not a um, that's just the journey well, and I'll remind people, uh, when Keenan was on the podcast, so I heard Keenan speak a few months ago, and he laid out a story of a guy, uh, Keenan works at a, uh, in Columbus and at a treatment center up there, and how he viewed success. He said, you know, we have a guy that comes into the pines, and then he leaves AMA, or he gets discharged, goes across the street, gets whatever drug he does you know and he said the guy comes back the next week we consider that a success and it really caused me to kind of challenge some of the very black and white binary uh, beliefs I had about recovery mm -hmm. uh, yeah I mean going back to treatment is a success yeah especially given the prolifera proliferation of uh, fentanyl in everything um, yeah so, right and, and it's you know for me, it was, I had every intention of stopping. 
when the first time I went to treatment, the second time I went, I had every intention. Um, but that's just the journey, you know. What does it take? I don't know what it takes because everybody's everybody's journey is different. Everybody's recovery is different. You know, I don't I support sobriety, but there are so many different ways that people feel comfortable in what they use. You know, mine is a spiritual program. It's a connection with my higher power. And growing up in Ireland, I was Irish Catholic. You know, I am Irish Catholic and I didn't grow up in a in a very religious family, but I had three uncles who were priests, four aunts who were nuns. Oh wow! But it was never it was never pushed down our throats. We, we it wasn't a very strict religious family. We had good morals. My my parents had good morals. They had good ethics. You know, we said the rosary, we did the Catholic stuff, but it was never pushed on us. It just was. That's the way, you know, I always believed in God. Um, my conception changed um, of what God was. You know, I believe that we serve a loving and a forgiving God. Um, I don't believe that I serve a punishing God. Um, I think any of the punishments that I have had have been of my own accord. I don't think God punishes sure. us. I think I have stepped into that, you know, but and and one of the reasons I think I was in treatment for or went to treatment so many times is I never took responsibility. I I blamed everybody else. I blamed you know whatever it was I could blame, and if. if one of the questions I heard you ask, you know, Carver when he was on, and that was a fantastic interview, by the way, um, was, you know, what do people need to do? What advice would you give to people? And that's probably one of your questions, but I'm jumping the, the gun. It is. Um, you know, just be honest with yourself. Get, <coughs> be, and be, it's, there's not, there's, there's a, there's a really good motivational speaker. Her name is Lisa Nichols. And a lot of times she will open up her, her talks with, when the tongue in your mouth and the tongue in your shoe are going two different directions, there's a problem. Well, that's pretty and good. And I love that. <laughs> because, you know, we say stuff, but do, do, our action, do my actions and my words match? Because that's where the incongruency is. You know, I have to... I have to be aware of what I'm saying and what I'm doing. Um, integrity today is one of the most important things for me. Sure. Because I, I had no integrity. When no. I was, I mean, I could look at you and tell you the biggest fib and you would believe it. Um, well, this is the flip side of the blaming everybody. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, or, or blaming or coming up with this never ending list mm -hmm. of reasons why I can't. Right. Why it won't work. Mm -hmm. I'm different. Uh, I've heard before somebody say, sorry, uh, you know, everybody in AA thinks they're the best, worst, you know, that they. Mm -hmm. Anyway, go ahead. Right. Sorry. No, and, and, and you know, we, we, we I, I guess where I come from is. If, if I'm not living in my integrity, and you know, as a therapist, well, a, a, a former therapist, I do some, some therapy work on the side when I'm asked. It's not really individual therapy, but 
Um, I'll do some seminars and I'll do some talks and stuff like that, which I love doing. But, um, and I totally forgot what I was going to say. Um, when my father died, he died the year I got sober. My husband died six years after I got sober. Both died from cancer. Um, my mom came to visit me when my, when, when my husband died. And she spent six weeks with me. And um, we were sitting outside one night and she said to me, she said, Denise, when I die, God's gonna ask me one question. And I said, what's that question, mom? And she said, God's gonna ask me, my mom's name was Teresa and she died last year. She was 89 years old. She said, God's gonna ask me one question. He's gonna say, Teresa, how did you use the gifts I gave you? That hit me like a two by four. Because up to that point, I had used every gift to manipulate people, to get what I wanted. You know, there was always a, there was always something, even if I gave something, I wanted something back. Some agenda. There, thank you, that's the word. There was an agenda attached to, I would say, everything I did. And I thought, oh, I hope I don't die soon because I know where I'm going. <laughs> you know, I'm Catholic. I still this believe in I still believe I'm in hell. So I, I, at that, and I was six years sober at that time. You know, I had lived, I wasn't drinking. I was doing some things right, but I wasn't being, I wasn't being authentic. I wasn't being honest. I wasn't being truthful. And I think the part of our journey, Drew, is, is, we learn. We learn by our mistakes. We learn by what we do. We learn by reflection. You know, that, 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 um, that I do a nightly inventory. Well, that's a lie. I don't do a nightly inventory. I do an inventory often, let me put it like that, um, where I have to reflect on, you know, what is it? Did I, did I, did I tell a white lie? Did I, did I try to manipulate a situation? And I've got to be honest about that. When we do not take responsibility for our lives, we become victims. Absolutely. Because you're to blame, she's to blame, they're to blame, and if they would only do right, I'd be happy. You know, this is one of the main things. I have come to focus on this in my own recovery. Uh, you know, one of the uh, tenets of 12-step programs at large is this recognition of the powerlessness we have over our bugaboo, whatever it is, alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling. And I have thought to myself, I need to remember, there's a lot that I have power over. My behavior being the number one thing. Mm -hmm. And there comes a point where I have realized that by accepting response, there's freedom in accepting responsibility because it also places on me uh, some measure of control over how my future is going to play out. You know, I can I cannot go to the to the liquor store. I cannot go to the casino. I cannot I can choose not to lie. I can choose to be honest. I can choose to be uh, to have, to to live an authentic or an authentic life and I wish that more people would would understand that look own up to your 
shenanigans. Own mm -hmm. up to your madness because there's some freedom there. Right, right. And, you know, when, when, and that empowers us. When I take responsibility for my actions, then I can change it. But when I'm blaming you for my actions, like he made me mad. No, he didn't make me mad. He brought out the madness in me. You know, nobody can make you angry. I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt said, nobody can make you feel inferior without your consent. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, I've heard that before. You know, and I can say, well, she made me angry. No, she said something that brought up something in me that made me angry. Well, I'm still practicing that. Well, no. me too. I mean, this is a this is. I'm not great at it. We say a work in progress, you know. I, but the one thing about it is, I can step back and say, "Oh, this is this is an invitation to check myself." But before I would go off, it never even dawned on me, you know, that any of this had to do with me. They were just bad people trying to upset my life. But when somebody, you know, pushes your buttons, well, they push your buttons because they're installed. Right. You know, and we're just reacting to something. There's a, you know, it's, it's there's a, I love quotes. Everybody talk, well, some people don't like my quotes because I love, but quotes are like metaphors for me. And I, I hear, I get a lot out of small things. And one of, one of my, my quotes that I like to, to, you know, to, to quote is, it's not what happens to us that matters. It's what we do with what happens to us that matters. Well, it's interesting that you should bring up quotes because I have one for you. We discovered the way up is often down and the path to breakthrough is sometimes through breakdown. Yes. You wrote I that. I wrote that? You wrote that. Did that I was really? in that uh, letter oh you God. sent me. Okay. And I thought, that's fantastic. <laughs> and just so everybody hears it again. We discovered the way up is often down, and the path to breakthrough is sometimes through breakdown. I liked it so much, I typed it in my little outline for us today. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, I, I don't like remember quote, writing I like that. quotes, too. Yeah. Give you some and credit for that one. Well, you know, it's, but it's true. You know, they say just when we're falling, when we think our world is falling apart, it's actually falling into place. You know, we have to fall apart to get well. You know, it, all of the, all of the lies and all of the, the deceit and all of the, like the game I was playing or the, the role, I won't say the game, the role I was playing had to fall apart for, for that spirit to, you know, to evolve. But I think that's such a hard thing, a hard concept for people in recovery, especially in the beginning, to get on board with. Because if I could think of one common thread between everybody with an addiction problem, it's the the lack of hope. Right. You know, we just so often feel like there is no way out. Uh, Brendan Fraser, that actor who was in The Mummy, mm -hmm. I was watching something about him and some troubles he'd had in his own life. And he said, speaking of quotes, he said, I felt like I, that somebody had thrown invisible paint on me. Yeah. And I thought, I can get on board with that. I, you know, this, it's this hopelessness, this despair. You can't articulate it, really. You can't see it. It's just like invisible paint. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's... How do you practice 
getting rid of that invisible paint. I practiced just being me. You know, there was so, for so many years, I didn't think that I was good enough. Um, the five things I, I knew about myself without question growing up. I was unlovable. I was unworthy. I was stupid. I was weak. And I was never going to make it. And when, we when, when I have that, when I grow up, and I'm not saying anybody installed these in me, these were messages that I made up in my head about my self-worth. So I had to write down these five things and then I had to cross them out and I had to write five positive things because it's what we tell our brains. Our, what we have in our mind is going to show up out there. As a man thinketh. If I, oh, and I love that book. Um, as a man thinketh, so is he. So, so is he. So, so, is he. Um, so I had to write down the five things and the five things I and I couldn't even look in the mirror and say these in the beginning. I am lovable. I am worthy. I am successful. I am courageous. Courageous was one of the most important things that I, I, I think that changed my mind, that, 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 that gave me the power to do what I did with the McCoy House. I mean, that was, my family thought I'd gone back drinking. They sent my brother down to Mississippi from New York, who he worked in New York at the time. He was a, a carpenter, a detailed, he would, would not like me saying he was a carpenter. He was like, he used to work on the, the Wall Street buildings, was, do all of that detailed carpenter work. But they sent him down to Mississippi and he called my mom and he said, she has lost her mind. <laughs> he said, either she needs to be in a mental hospital or she needs to be back in treatment. I don't know if he said those words, but this is what I heard that they, they, he thought that I, you know, had relapsed because I had taken every dime I had out of the bank. And my family would like lost it. You know, they thought she is, we're, we're, <laughs> we're going to be bringing her home. Um, but it's, and I forget your question. I've just gone off on a big old tangent. No, no, it's good. Anyway. Just have at it. So, you know, just life today is amazing in sobriety. And you talk about the newcomer, you know, and about hope. I didn't have any hope. I, before I got sober, you know, and I know this is hard for my family to hear, if any of them ever listened to this, but I sat with a gun to my head. And my daughter in the bedroom, I mean, that's, that's, that's no hope right there. That's powerlessness. That's pain. And I hear people say, you know, that people who commit suicide or people who cont contemplate suicide are selfish. They know nothing about what selfish is. I don't see it as selfish. I see it as, well, first of all, nobody in their right mind is going to want to commit suicide, is going to want to end their lives. So it's a mental illness that we deal with at that time. I wanted the pain to stop, and I didn't know how to stop it. And that was my only way. But I had no hope at that time. Somebody, I've been asked so many times, what happened? What made you not pull that trigger? 
I do not know. I just Divine didn't. intervention. Divine intervention. You know, I, I didn't pull the trigger. And my daughter was seven at the time. If I had done that, she was seven. Her father died when she was 13. She would be without a mother and a father. You know, this recovery has given me a life way beyond my imagination. And the only thing that I will say to a newcomer is don't give up. Don't give up. No matter what. I have nothing, I have nothing that every other person doesn't have. I mean, I have, I have nothing special. Look, you're taking the words right out of my mouth. I have thought to myself in help in talking to other people, there's nothing about my life that's not available to everyone else. Right. I didn't do anything different other than I just didn't get high no matter what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was talking about Costas area and I didn't finish the story. Um, when I was doing the McCoy house, um, I went to her and I said, you know, Costas, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have a degree in, in business. You know, I don't know what a nonprofit is. I don't know what a 501c3 is. Am I crazy? And she looked at me and Costas knows my heart. She knows my spirit. And she looked at me and she said, Denise, God does not pick the equipped. He equips the picked. There you go. And I thought, bring it on. It was like a light bulb came on. Reinvigorated. I, I had the I had the passion to do something. And I felt that the, the, the passion I had was divinely inspired, like you said. You know, I think that's what God wanted me to do. And well going back to Jung's thoughts about that. Uh, right. And yeah. you know, if he wanted me to do this this was not an, an impulsive decision. You know, a lot. Of, I used to tell people I'm impulsive. I think that was a disclaimer so that, you know, well, if something went wrong, at least I've already <laughs> told you, you know, I'm impulsive. But then I got the name of being impulsive and nobody started, nobody was trusting me then because, oh, she says she's impulsive, so we can't trust her. So I had to re, I had to, I had to change my story because I wasn't really impulsive. I was using that as a disclaimer. I pray a lot and I think a lot about decisions I make. I might not talk to you about it or I might not talk to my family about it because, as, and I won't talk to people about it who are going to say, I don't think that's going to happen. You know, I, I don't talk to naysayers, not saying you're a naysayer because I know you're not. Or, my family would be so worried about this. They say, oh, Denise, I don't know. You need to be safe. Well, safe keeps me in a box. Safe keeps me compartmentalized. I'm a I'm a risk taker, but I take risks that I think are going to prove to be something right, that are going to be on the right road for me. Well, the McCoy House has certainly proved to be something right. Well, it I'll tell you, the McCoy House saved my life. Well, it gives you passion and something to work for and a goal and a mountain to climb. Mm -hmm. I mean, when Neil died, and I don't know, you know, there, uh, some people knew Neil, some people didn't. I met Neil about four years after my husband died. And Neil was a man in recovery as well. And he was a, he was a pistol. I mean, he was funny. He was energetic. He, he would have the, the weirdest sayings. And he used to make me laugh all the time. And I hadn't laughed in years. You know, when my husband died, I think my heart closed up. 
I was fearful of ever getting into another relationship. Um, I got into one that was a disaster soon after Richard died, and, and you know, I had to learn a lot about that. Um, but when I met Neil, I was very cautious. Um, you know, we were we weren't we didn't date for a long time, but we would go out for dinner and we'd we'd have fun and of course he had a Harley Davidson and motorcycles, you know, are my passion. I mean, give I, I even bought a motorcycle myself. I rode a Harley for eight years. Get out. Did that, you really? Yeah, <laughs> I did. Oh man, I've got my leathers and my chaps and all of that stuff. But I sold it when my mom my mom got sick and I couldn't afford the, the flight home. So I sold the motorcycle, and I went home to see her, and that was a few years ago when she, she was pretty sick. But Neil taught me how to laugh again, love again, and have fun again. And we had the best times. You know, we went to Arizona on his motorcycle. We went to um, North Carolina. We went to, um, where else did we go? We, we went to Colorado. And we just had the best time. So when he died, when he got cancer, my I'd, I felt like I had nothing. I just was like, oh my gosh. And naming the McCoy house after him, you know, a lot of people think that, oh yeah, Neil's, you know, left money in his will for the McCoy house. He didn't. Um, because we didn't talk about it until about three days before he died. We had gone to see it before. And that night that, that, the last night in the hospital with him, he reached out his hand and he said to me, he said, I think you need to go ahead with that house. And I thought they'd given him too much morphine. I didn't remember what house he was talking about. And he said, what house? And I said, the sober living house. Or he said, the sober living house. And I said, well, I said, and I just like, wow, he remembers. And I said, Neil, if I get the McCoy house, I said, if I, if I get that house, I'm going to call it the McCoy house. And he squeezed my hand and a tear ran down his cheek. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's in honor. I, I opened that house to honor a man that, that brought me back to life. You know, we can walk this world lifeless, but we're still here. But he gave me a passion. So it really, it, it gave me a passion for recovery. And about, what's about six months after I, I opened it in August, that very month, I was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And I went in and had surgery, and you know, my husband had died from, my father died from cancer. We had a lot of cancer in our family, and I thought, well, gosh, you know, is this it for me too? And when I was in the recovery room after the surgery, I had this thought, you know, what, what am I gonna do with the rest of my life? And it was, again, divine intervention. I had this thought, you're going to pour your heart and soul into the McCoy House and into recovery for women. Of course, I thought I had about two years to live, so I was gung ho with this. But this is 12 years down the road. It was like, God, you know, I mean, really, did you make a mistake here? I'm not supposed to be here. Um, but all of the insignificant things in my life faded away. You know, my self-importance, my my stuff, materialistic stuff. I gave away a lot of stuff just to declutter my life so that my path would be clear. Because my path was so overgrown with stuff. And, distractions. and distractions and materialistic stuff. And 
you know, I can't change where I've been. But I'm sure worried about where I'm going. <laughs> and I, for the rest of my life, I want to do right. I want to help people because that brings me more joy than anything else. And, and that's, that's probably selfish in itself because I get more out of this than people do. Well, I, I mean, really do. You don't know that, I, but I do. I, I believe you. I believe you. So you, you opened the McCoy house, and I know that the McCoy house only has women, right? That's it. Okay. Oh, that would be a disaster if we had men and women. You know that. It would be. Every recovery person knows that. Every Everyone does. Or if they don't, they're soon to find out. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Do you think that the struggles for women in recovery are different from the struggles for men? I do because we're different, you know. I, I mean, the, there's a men are for women, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. You know that book. We have a totally different. We're here for different reasons. Um, you know, I've worked with men, and I, and one of the greatest gifts that I've ever been given was working with men, especially men who struggle with relationship addiction, love addiction, sex addiction. Um, because the umbrella term for those would be the process. Um, process addictions. Um, because I've learned, you know, my husband was a Vietnam vet. My husband was American. I met him in Saudi Arabia in 1981 when I went there. Um, he was from Los Angeles, well, outside Los Angeles. And he was a Vietnam vet. I knew nothing about trauma back then. I knew nothing about what, what vets went through. Um, so my husband was very closed off to talking about anything in that era, anything about his life. And, you know, he was, he was, he was different. Um, he had his own struggles. He was a great father. He was a great provider. He was a great protector, but he had his own trauma. And um, he was closed, never spoke about any feelings or anything like that. I mean, yeah, we could talk about love and we could talk about fun, but deep stuff that happened before I met him, mm -mm, nothing. So when I started working with men, the biggest gift that I was given was knowing their stories. Because, you know, I come from, from, from an Irish background. My dad didn't talk about feelings. My brothers don't talk about feelings. So I was, I was blessed by being open to men sharing their struggles. Well, I've said this before, how I kind of have a love-hate relationship with the idea of feelings, because, you know, on one hand, uh, you know, recovery and sobriety teaches you that feelings won't kill you or hurt you, and then on the other hand, it's like, look, I, you know, I need to kind of get away from feelings. I mean, damn my feelings, and just uh, speaking of sayings, uh, George Bernard Shaw says, mm -hmm. uh, um, let's forget about the likes and dislikes and focus on that which must be done. You know, there's a certain aspect of recovery that tells you, look, it doesn't matter what you're feeling. Just don't relapse. Don't go to the liquor right. store. Don't go to the casino. Mm -hmm. But then if, if, if instances in our lives bring up feelings, because feelings are a result of things that either we perceive or that have happened to us. So if we don't talk about them, what are we doing? <clears throat> We're just pushing them down. You know, there's a, there's, like, I don't want to be around somebody who is, you know, just 
always poor me, poor me, poor me. But if we don't talk about the feelings in a healthy way, rather than being a victim or being sloppy about it. I mean, I don't, I don't like sloppy people who are, uh, you know, feeling, feeling, feelings all the time. But I think there's a time and a place where we talk about things that are that come up for us that are important. Because if we push them down, then we're just denying what's really going on. I guess that that freedom to be, or that courageousness right. to to be willing to, to be talk authentic. about those feelings, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but not let them dictate our our behavior, our life. Yeah, you know, there's a um, Marian Williamson was a great. She was uh, she is a beautiful author, and she wrote something that. Do you mind if I read it? I do not. Oh my please. God, I love this. Did I bring my glasses? Okay. I have, to. I have bifocals you can okay. maybe borrow. Well, let me, let me see if I can do I've I've read it so often that I probably can read it without my glasses. She says, our deepest fear, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that scares us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, or fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to manifest the gift that is within us. It is not in some of us, it is in all of us. And when we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. I wow. love that. There's a lot in there. Read that last line again about liberation from fear. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. When I can be honest with you, like you said, you know, these people need to know about the shame and about the stuff that I've dealt with. If I'm not honest about that, how can I, how can I give hope to somebody else? Exactly. Extracting some benefit from the bad in our story right. to help other people. And, and, and everything that has happened to me, I've played a part in it. I have a friend who, there's three things she'll ask me. If I go to her with something, she'll say, well, how's that working for you? Right. And then she'll say, what's your part? And what's the payoff for you? She never points a finger. Th these are questions. You know, and, and how many times have we been asked, and, and I, do, I see this in treatment all the time, because I just left North Carolina. I gave up my job there. I go back, I'm going to go back as a contract employee when they need me at times. I worked with young women. We're talking 18 to 22. I think the oldest is about 30 years old. So these, these are all young women. And when they come into, into group, you know, I, I'm like the grandmother there now. I'm not like I used to be. I used to be a tough a tough therapist. Riding that motorcycle. I mean, I was bad. I was, but I was very confrontational, and I've 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 learned that sometimes that doesn't work. You know, you have to meet people where they are, and I've learned. Uh, I've made a lot of mistakes. 
through being a therapist and through working with people. And the one thing I want to show now is love and kindness and understanding these women, these people that I've worked with. And, you know, one of the questions I'll say, well, when you were in your family of origin, you know, did you ever hear this saying, well, what happened to you and why can't you do right and, and what's wrong with you? I heard that all the time. But if the question was asked, what happened to you? That would open such a bigger dialogue because my family used to say, what's wrong with you all the time? I didn't know what was wrong with me. But if, if the question was asked, what happened to you? Tell me your story. Look at, look at what that would, would bring up for people. It would give you an opportunity to get to know people. Because I forget the name of the interviewer. I think of her name. Krista Tippett. She is a, an amazing interviewer. And one of her, her she, she says this, and I love it. She said, a beautiful question elicits a beautiful answer. And I'm sitting over here thinking to myself, how many times I uh, have taken my kids back to my ex-wife's house and I've left and I thought, I'm the worst father ever. No, you're not. I shouldn't have said this like that. And now I'm sitting over here listening to you say that and I've, I'm running through my mind all the times I've said something like, why are, what the hell's wrong with you? What Have you lost your mind? What, why are you... And We do it all the time. Like there's I do a part it. of me that wants to die, you know? But, and, but this is just knowing. I mean, we're all on a journey. I've done it. I do it. I'm sure I do it. If I don't do it, I think it. <laughs> you know, I, I think I've been able to, to stop before I say things some of the time. Um, but just knowing that, you know, that that's not a judgment. It's just... Promoting how, awareness. How exactly? How, how how can I be? How can I approach people in a way that their walls do not go up? You know, the only way to get people to get to to take down their walls is for us to let ours down. You know, if I go in there and I'm just this this therapist that, and there might be people listening to this that, and if there are that I have hurt you in any way by questions I've asked, I apologize. You know, I've, 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 I, through the years, I've done a lot of introspection and growing, and you know, I, my goal is to help people to get to where they want to be. Well, one of the reasons I asked you a little while ago about the McCoy House only having women is because I had some questions about this, uh, and then I, I read. Uh, and you can you can find this article on the New York Times. I mean, it's interesting to me the approach that uh, the two sexes would have towards recovery. Uh, a, a recent survey of 65,000 65, public high school students in 11 states showed that 30% of teenage girls say they have intentionally injured themselves without aiming to commit suicide. About one in four adolescent girls deliberately harmed herself in the previous year, often by cutting or burning, compared to one in 10 in boys. Uh, that's, I have a daughter that's 
soon to be 10 years old, and that's alarming. In your experience as a therapist, have you seen this? Have you seen this? It, it, do you agree that I do? It might be that that number might be that high. And I am, and I think it's it's. I think it got higher during COVID. I really do, because when I left here in two thousand and nineteen, COVID had COVID hadn't hit yet, and I started to work at a treatment center <clears throat> in Ashburn, North Carolina. I mean, a very prominent treatment center. And most, I would say, 75% of the women, if not higher, have got self-harm tendencies. I mean, we had a lady that walked into group one day, and I was stunned by the, how she had self-mutilated her body. Every part of her except her face. What, what, is, what do practitioners think is the, the cause or genesis for this alarming increase? I've heard it likened to social media. Well, um, yes. That, and, and, and it, I mean, there's not just one reason that people do this. It can be you know, people who have a borderline personality disorder might do it for attention. And that's what, you know, in the very beginning, that's what, that's what we thought many, many years ago. Oh, but no, it's not that. It can, it can be that. And it's not, a t it's attention pain because a person who has borderline personality disorder, the core of that is trauma, trauma as a child. And when a child does not get their basic needs met, nurturing, uh, when they're not nurtured, um, when there's no bonding, when there's no direction um, in, a, in, 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 a, in a person's childhood, infancy, supposing there's a father who's an alcoholic, a mother who's an alcoholic, there's something else going on in the house and the child's basic needs are not taken care of. This is not blaming parents, it just is what it is. So in order for that child to get attention, she's got to lay down on the floor and have a tantrum to get her diaper changed or to get a, a milk or to get water or to get somebody to notice her. So as she grows up, she's gonna get attention and bad attention is better than no attention. Because when, when, we, are, when we don't get attention as children, we die. So it's a survival tactic, it's a survival instinct, so we have to teach them new behaviors. So it can be another reason for it is emotional pain. They have so much emotional pain going on that if they harm themselves, now they can focus on the physical pain. Another one can be there's so much going on on the inside that the release of blood lets out some of the, they call it the bad stuff within me. You know, there, there's, there's no one reason for anything that we do. You have to get to the core of something. And I think that's, that's where treatment is really changing, where we're not treating everything on a, on a superficial basis. Well, this is what she does, so here's the cure. No. You're we have to get down to get the... Get to you have causes to, rather than symptoms. Exactly. You have to get down to the core, you know. Tell me more about this. 
asking questions rather than making, you know, making assumptions. When I was, when I first got sober, I was diagnosed as having bipolar disorder. I was told I was going to have medication for the rest of my life. And I was okay with that. I thought, this is your place in life. This is what you're going to have to do. It's better than shock therapy. Exactly. Yeah, really. <clears throat> and, you know, six years, when I moved out to work at a treatment center here in Jackson, I, I, I got to be friends with the psychiatrist there who was from England at the time. And I, I mean, she came from England. And so we got to be friends. And I was sitting at lunch one day with her and I said, you know, I said, I was diagnosed with bipolar. I, I, you know, I take this medication. And she said, Denise, you don't, you don't appear to me as being bipolar. I said, well, I'm on medication, you know. That means the medicine's working. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so she said, I think you've been misdiagnosed. And I thought, oh, God, okay, now what does that mean? So she said, would you be willing to work with me? to titrate you off and see what's going on. And I, I was scared, but I was, I was like, I thought, oh my gosh, wouldn't this be great if I didn't have to take this stuff? And so she titrated me. And now if anybody's listening to this, do not go off your medications, okay? Right. This is, do please don't. But she worked with me and she titrated me off these. I don't take anything today for mental disorders. I was misdiagnosed. How many people are misdiagnosed? Well, I you think that, that could be the topic for a very long podcast. So, right so, so I do want to say to any listeners, please, don't take this, what I'm saying about my, my personal journey with, with being diagnosed incorrectly as yours because it may not be yours. Work with a psychiatrist. Work with a psychologist. Do not go off meds that you're on without being supervised because I really don't want to have that on my conscience. I'm just telling my own story. But there are a lot of people. You know, the two biggest, um, the two biggest money-making businesses in the United States today, the pharmaceutical industry and the storage building industry. We take medications for feelings that we don't want to feel, and we keep stuff that we can't have in our house. We're hoarders, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I could use another word, but I'm not because we're on. But you know, we're 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 just so self-absorbed. We we can, if we learn how to how to deal with feelings in a healthy way, we might not have to take medication. Well, and the, even even beyond medication, like I had a lot of problems in my personal life, and I had a lot of poor behavior patterns that just kind of resolved themselves once I really devoted myself to recovery. Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of amazing how these things kind of, they resolve themselves. They do, because we practice new behaviors. We build new neural pathways in our brain. And in order to build new neural pathways in our brain, like I tell people, do a gratitude list. Do an affirmation list. Absolutely. And they'll say, well, I did it twice and it didn't work. Well, really? Imagine that. You know, but you've been doing this for 20 years. 
I bet you drank to excess more than twice. Right, right. You know, it's just recovery is a practice. It's a practice. It's a blessing. It's a miracle. And for anybody out there who is struggling, don't give up hope. I remember this old man when I first got sober. He said to me, and I wish I could remember who he was, but he said, Denise, no matter what happens, and alcohol was my drug of choice. He said, no matter what happens, don't take a drink. No matter what. And I used to white knuckle it. I used to white knuckle it, and I used to, and this, it would go on in my head, okay, no matter what happens, don't take a drink, no matter what happens. For my first year, all I could do was not drink. The first year is a struggle for a lot of people. You know, some people get in there and they just ride that gravy train and they're fine and they're wonderful. That wasn't the way for me. I really struggled in my first year. Well, that's the, for, for most people. Mm -hmm. well, look, I'm glad you've moved on to this because one of the most impactful things I've heard since I've been doing this podcast was Angela talk about how she just kind of happened to go to this event when she was seven months sober. And I thought, what what a miracle, really. And how we never know when we're going to be exposed to that thing that changes for us, that thing that helps us get involved, that thing that helps us make some good, beneficial use of our past poor behavior and past poor mistakes. How can people get involved? How can they give back? You can also shamelessly plug for the McCoy House if you want to. Right. Or how can they serve the community? What What could a lady or guy or a gentleman out there who's struggling, how can they get more involved? Well, I think we have to work on ourselves first. You know, one of the things that I heard was when I worked at Baptist Hospital as a therapist, we there was a um, we had an adolescent. There was an adolescent program there as well at a different place. It was called the Children's Village. I went there. Did you really? Absolutely. Oh my God, okay. So we had this young girl that used to come in to aftercare and um, from that program. And um, she's, I, I used to do the family program at that time. And um, she said, no matter what you put before your recovery, you will lose. And that is the honest God <clears throat> truth. You know, for somebody new, how to get involved, you have to get involved in your own recovery. You have to, I had to get involved in, you know, going to meetings, having a sponsor, working whatever recovery program that's out there that I feel comfortable with, um, being honest with myself. The, the work begins with me. Now, I know we have to help people, but a lot of people get in there and they're busy doing stuff on the outside. They're getting into relationships, you know. They're looking for these high-profile jobs. They're, they're putting everything before building a stable recovery within themselves. And I think that's the first thing. I think service is a wonderful thing to do, but a lot of people will go out and do service work, and that becomes their 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 goal their identity yeah their identity it's you know oh I'm great at this or I'm sponsoring five people I couldn't sponsor five people and take care of myself you know I have to okay again this woman that I, Lisa Nichols one of the things she says that I absolutely love and this was me to a T in the beginning 
She said, we don't serve from an empty cup. If we serve from an empty cup, we will be frustrated, we will be angry, we will be resentful, we will be victims. She said, I, she spoke about herself, she said, I make sure that my cup is full and I serve from the saucer. And I love that. Well, it is said that you can't transmit something you haven't got. That's right. So. That's right. So you know, we have to take care of ourselves first. But, you know, service work is great. Volunteer work is fabulous. There is, Jackson has got one of the best recovery communities. I got sober here. I'm back here because this is where I belong. Because these people in Jackson held me and give me hope when I didn't have hope. Do you anticipate staying here? I am going to be between here and Asheville. I'm not giving up being a nana. That's my grandchild. I mean, that is my. I I even my my heart just lights up when I think of that child. He is. My heart outside of me. I can attest to everyone to the big grin on Denise's face every time she mentions him. Oh, so yeah. It's, and he's, it's he's, true. His middle name is, his name is Jude, and his middle name is Wilder. 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 Jude Wilder Cannon. And he is the funniest ever. He has a sense of humor. He's going to be a stand-up comedian. I love him. But to answer your question, I'm going to be back here two weeks a month. And they are two weeks a month. Well, I've kind of made my way through all of my questions. Is there anything you wanted to talk about that I've not asked you or we hadn't gotten to? No, no. Um, Drew, I love what you're doing. And I said this to Drew. I hope you don't mind me saying this. But you've already mentioned Bridge to Recovery, so I'm not breaking your anonymity. But when Drew called me and asked me if I was going to do this, I was trying to... You know, I knew who Drew was, but a lot of times I don't put things together for a while. And I said, Drew, were you the one in group that every time group would end on a, we, we had Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday nights, Drew would get the group together and we would all kind of, I don't know how we would do it, would we hold hands or something? And we would all lean in together and he would say, go team. Go team. Go team. And I think we got you a banner before you left, <laughs> or something before you left with Go Team on it. But I was, you know, I, I mentioned this to Drew right before we started, that that really warmed my heart to see how you, at that time, in early recovery, were bringing people together. And now you're bringing people together in this podcast. Well, that's the goal, hopefully. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. So... I really appreciate the opportunity to be on here too. I was I got very anxious this morning. I even posted that this was daunting. Um, but it really wasn't. It's a pleasure. It's good. It's good. And I appreciate your being here. And just so you know, uh, like I can feel your love and kindness kind of radiate off of you. And I feel like I have a kinder spirit from having sat here and talked to you for the past hour or so, or however long we've been doing it. So thank you. Yeah. It was wonderful. Thank you. All right, everybody. Tune in next time.